Welcome to the Living in Alignment podcast. My name is Amy Landry. Through a collage of conversations, here we distill mindful living and timeless wisdom within a modern, everyday context. Thank you for being here. Born in Texas in 1953, Dr. Robert Svoboda is the first Westerner ever to graduate from a college of Ayurved and be licensed to practice Ayurveda in India. After being ritually initiated into the Pokot tribe of northern Kenya as its first white member in June 1973, he moved to India where he lived during the 70s and 80s, receiving his Bachelor of Ayurvedic Medicine and Surgery from the University of Pune in 1980. In his final year of study at the Tilak Ayurved Mahavidyalaya, he won all but one of the University of Pune's awards for academic excellence in Ayurveda, including the Ram Narayan Sharma Gold Medal. During and after his formal Ayurvedic training, he was tutored in Ayurveda, Yoga, Jyotisha, Tantra, and other forms of classical Indian lore by his mentor, the Aghori Vimalananda. Author of over a dozen books, Dr. Svoboda has traveled extensively in the years since 1986, spending three months per year on average in India. You can find out more about his work and study online with Robert at drsvoboda.com and also stay up to date with him on Facebook, YouTube and Instagram. Dr. Robert Svoboda, it is a true honor to have you as a guest on the podcast and given your current travels and schedule across India right now. I'm even more grateful that you've, as I said before we press record, you've carved some space out to join me in this conversation. So thank you and welcome. Thank you. As I alluded to in our email conversation, normally we begin these conversations on the podcast with the story behind each guest. And you've had an, and continue to live a remarkable life. Uh, your story, your timeline is vast. And I appreciate that if we were to share your path thus far, we would need a very large window of time. Uh, hence, I thought we could begin with hearing perhaps a couple of your most pivotal moments or experiences across the past few decades, if you would be open to sharing. Um, well, uh, pivotal moments, probably uh, the number one moment to begin with was when I um, decided to when I left the U.S. in March of 1973, I was still 19, and I decided I just want. I had been accepted into medical school in the U.S., and but I wanted to, I wanted to visit some place exotic. So I went to Africa. I crossed Africa overland. Um, I joined an African tribe. I did all kinds of unusual things. And then um, I flew to England, then I crossed overland to Nepal. And then, uh, it, I mean, it, it, and then I just happened to, in January of 1974, meet the right people and get uh, admitted into the Ayurvedic College in Pune. And then in September of 1975, another pivotal moment was when I met my mentor, Vimalananda, in Pune, in the context of I was I was interviewing um, uh, practitioners of various medical systems, Ayurveda in particular, and so that was a very pivotal moment. Uh, his death on December third, twelfth, nineteen eighty three. So that will be forty years um, next month. Uh, was another pivotal moment. Um, and, and thereafter, I mean, I think probably, probably everything has moved along fairly consistently. Um, maybe the most pivotal moment just from the perspective of, um, life and death was, um, September the 19th of 2021 when his, um, his foster daughter Roshni, who um, who I had known well for almost um, uh, almost fifty years, 
uh, when she uh, uh, passed on, and she's she was the um, the fifth uh, person that I personally have cremated in my lifetime. So I think any time that you personally cremate someone, that's a noteworthy thing. The first two were with my mentor, and they were his father and his paternal uncle. Uh, but then the third was him. The fourth was the original mentor that I had had before I met him, who just who lived in Hyderabad, but happened to arrive in Bombay and die the day after uh, I arrived myself in Bombay. And so I was the person, despite the fact he had two or three sons himself, uh, I was the person who ended up cremating him. And then I cremated Roshni. So um, every time that death is, of course, a very, um, it's it's a great transition. And when you're the actually taking your hand and applying fire to someone's body and having and and having that transform that body from the present into the past that's a that's a pivotal moment hmm. for me at least i can only imagine i can only imagine and given that you've experienced that so many times uh i can sense that perhaps obviously there's some similar experiences but each would present its own different um just qualities obviously in terms of your relationship with that person too but i i and obviously we've discussed uh, in the lead up to this this call together the, the our focus today around around death and and some may feel that's quite a morbid uh subject to have a conversation around uh and no doubt that is due to our western conditioning around the subject. Uh, however, given you have a wealth of insight, particularly through the lens of Indian culture and systems and philosophies, perhaps a useful foundation for this time together, maybe to begin with the Sanskrit language and, and specifically those words that have the potential to illuminate a useful perspective for us on death, um, you know, such as Sharira or Deha, or Mrityu, et cetera. So would you like to share a little bit about that to yeah, lay some foundation for us? Um, yes, I mean, uh, I, I certainly, uh, there, there, there are many words in Sanskrit that, uh, that mean the body. Uh, yes, and Deha is one of them, which comes from a root that means to plaster. And, um, so basically, the body is plastered over the frame. Uh, in fact, in Ayurveda, we use the word, a different word for plastering, lepana, to indicate the job that the muscles do. But this concept of, of there being uh, a, a, a number of different layers that are applied to an individual so that so that they can function in the world is is one that is reflected uh, in that word. Uh, sharira is another fine word. Uh, there are different opinions as to how exactly the word sharira is derived, but um, it, as far as I'm concerned, is derived from uh, what I was taught in the Ayurvedic college shiriyate iti sharira the body is that which deteriorates and so that is the nature of the body okay it is let's say up until age 35 um you stop growing depending on who you are let's say sometime between 21 and 25 but you're continuing to make um new uh connections you're continuing to to refine your ability to to function effectively, um, and your bones are continuing to gain um, density up until you're 35. But after 35, you really do start to deteriorate, and this is why we don't see um, 
or when we do see, we see one out of a, a thousand professional sport people who uh, are still are still at the highest level of activity after after age 40. But we don't see anyone who's at that level after age 50. And so it, this is because the body is simply no longer, um, someone put it, I think, very well, um, that um, after, after age 40, nature loses her interest in you. Because everyone has his or her or their agenda. And nature's agenda is that there should be... Um, uh, the, there, there should be continuity of species so that evolution can continue. And that can happen only if there is reproduction. So once you get to a certain age and you're not um, reproductively fit anymore, then nature is not so interested in you. In fact, humans are one of the very few, probably less than 10 species we know of, including uh, the orca, and uh, I think a species of aphid that continue to live on after the age of reproduction ends. And in the case of humans, the, it's obviously the case because we are so hypersocial that it's essential to have elders to assist us to keep the culture uh, in one piece and to keep transmitting it from one generation to the next. So it is while while you you hit your apex at age 35, maybe you have a, let's say a five year you know grace period, but definitely by age 40 your eyes start to go, lots of other things start to happen. And you have the choice of either plummeting or, slowly and gradually declining and gradually declining is certainly the way that Ayurveda suggests uh, is the, the better choice, but decline you will. And that's what that word Sharira reflects. Um, and then of course, there's the word um, Mrityu and it, it, comes, it comes from a root that means to die, Mru. But it's very closely related to another root, the root mrud. And that root, mrud, means earth. So fundamentally, dying means going back to the earth. And uh, in Sanskrit, uh, you know, Sanskrit is a samskarika bhasha. It's samaskrita. And uh, so there's a certain preference for uh, speaking um, in a in a in a refined kind of way. So instead of saying he died or he kicked the bucket or he bought the farm or whatever, one way to say that she died is you can say panchatvam gataha. She returned to fiveness. Those five things being earth, water, fire, air, and space. The fire, five Mahabhutas, the five elements that make up the world. But the main thing you return to is to the earth element. That's the main thing that is keeping you functional on this planet. And therefore, the ashes to ashes and dust to dust kind of concept. There's a sense with all these Sanskrit words, uh, an undertone of indicating to us, though, that we are not this body, right? Not to get to detach from because everything is just going to disintegrate and dissolve eventually. Would that be correct in your eyes? Well, I, I certainly think that that it, it from the very from the earliest times, people have not tried to pretend that they may have desired to be immortal, but they have not tried to pretend that death does not exist. I mean, in the West, and I shouldn't say the West, in, in, in the affluent world, 
uh, you can often get away without seeing death, um, uh, but very occasionally and accidentally. Um, all of the food, you never see a slaughterhouse. You don't ever, I mean, in India, do you do, but in, let's say in, in more, uh, in, in fancier areas, you, you don't see slaughterhouses. You don't see, uh, you, 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 you will only see a corpse, uh, if it is laid out in the funeral home and then very briefly, and it's already been gussied up. So it looks, uh, all, uh, uh, all, 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 uh, tidy. Um, and there is, and, and people actively try to avoid exposing themselves to death because everyone is afraid of dying. There is no question about that. Uh, there, there is, there is no, uh, no organism that would, that, that wants fundamentally to die. Every organism wants to continue living as long as possible, but it's important to remember that the 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 it, it, when you were born it is absolutely certain unless you happen to be like a mythical figure a legendary figure like Prahlad or Parashuram uh, or Hanuman and you become immortal that's a different matter but even immortals are not immortal forever even the immortals, they may live for hundreds. Maybe they live for thousands of years, but no one is going to remain. The stars live for sometimes billions of years, but they also eventually fall to pieces. So everything that is created is going to be destroyed. There is no question about that. And it's good to, to acknowledge that and not be afraid of it and live your life like if you were to die right now, you would not have any major regrets. Because it's it, it's very important, not only for yourself, but for your, we, we hope you have loved ones. And if you do, then you owe it to them to, to, to as far as possible, be, make a very, um, uh, an uh, an exit that reflects that that you have achieved a certain quality of peace. Otherwise, you're going to be leaving them agitated, possibly for years or decades, because you have you have not performed that service for them. So it's it's not just for you that you should be well composed before you die. It's for everyone you're leaving behind. I do recall in your class on death and consciousness in the satsanga subscription you're speaking so practically uh, you know you share such um a wealth of knowledge in all these incredible fields let's say of the the wisdom systems or traditions of india but i remember you're also being extremely practical you know getting your life in order and and having your will in order and not just thinking about yourself but yes thinking about the people around you and understanding what you might be transferring onto them. Well, the and end. of course, I was partially thinking about this for myself because Roshni, Vimalananda's foster daughter, despite the fact that she was otherwise very well organized and had had uh, and and had been planning for several years to uh, to to finally sign her will, failed to do so before she had a stroke, and then not only had a stroke, but could not move uh, 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 any part of her body sufficient to be able to do any signing thereafter and couldn't talk and couldn't. So it was, uh, it, it was a, 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 a direct and very, um, because I've had, had been having to deal with the re repercussions of that. So um, it was a very direct reminder. And and I had to compare, you know, I had to compare this unfavorably with my own parents um, who who Roshni knew well. And my parents, um, they prepaid their funerals. They had their wills made out uh, far in advance and everything was everything was very smooth. And um, and and it made it easy for me and my sister to get everything taken care of and it made it um uh uh and and they had already indicated 
what was not in the will, what needed to go to whom. And, and it, it just, that, that when someone has, when someone has just passed on, this is the kind of thing that, that really means something because no matter who you are, and even if you don't really get along with your parents or your siblings or whatever, you are going to feel it when they die. And you're going to feel it because you share some of their genetic material and the prana, the life force has just been disconnected forcibly from that genetic material. So you're going to feel it at not even a cellular level. You're going to feel it at a genetic level. And it's, it's going to be very uneasy for you. And that's why they say uh, in India, there's a period called sutaka. It goes on for two weeks after a birth and two weeks after a death. And that's, that's the time that there is a, that's, there's the transition of a soul, of a spirit between this world and the next world. And that's the time when things are, 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 are very much, um, they, they need to be, uh, it's, it's a good time to have routines and rituals and things in place that assist your prana to stay nice and 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 balanced at a time when when you yourself are quite out of balance mm -hmm. and i guess that's where the the practices and principles of yoga and ayurveda are incredibly useful uh in f facing those real confronting again pivotal moments of our life to bring that steadiness and I think forever for the rest of my life, I'm going to hear you in the back of my mind saying, remain calm, remain calm over and over because returning back to that over and over is such simple but potent guidance. Remaining calm is extremely valuable, especially in a crisis. Mm. If you're going to freak out, please do it sometime other than during the crisis. You can do, you can freak out in advance if you know the crisis is on the way. That's probably a, the best idea. Otherwise, wait till the crisis is over and then fall apart, not during the crisis. Speaking of crisis, that's a, a good segue here. So there is a tremendous amount of death being witnessed and broadcast across the world right now. And perhaps in reality, this is really we have to admit going on almost all the time in various countries around the globe, but may not be being shown to us or we may not be choosing to pay attention to that. However, on some level, death is certainly, mm, I'm not sure if revered is the right word, but uh, for lack of a better word, revered within India, which you've sort of alluded to here. And hence, I'd love for you to share more about this with respect to um, the auspicious city of Banaras or Varanasi and the confronting smashans or cremation grounds on the banks of the Ganges River. I know personally being there myself for the first time, I think it was 11 years ago now, it was profoundly a moving, a very moving experience. I, I think one that's quite unfathomable to the minds of, let's say, most Western people um, to a degree. So would you mind sharing some insight into Benares, particularly within this context of death? Well, yes, I think, of, of course, every city in India has one or more smashan, a smashan meaning a cremation ground, though originally that word apparently was ashmashan, which means a place where there's lots of rocks. So that could have meant that originally people were being buried or exposed to vultures or wild animals or whatever. But there are places where nowadays people are being cremated. And of course, the five cremations that I've done, I did in Bombay, one in the Vorli Smashan, but the other four in the Banaganga Smashan. And the Banaganga Smashan is a, a very beautiful and small and tidy smashan in the uh, one of the most exclusive areas of the city, and um, and I, I'm fond of it, of course, because I've been there so many times. Uh, 
not only to cremate the those people, but also to attend other cremations, but also because it's right on the sea. And uh, it, well, there is a wall between, uh, you know, because of the monsoon, but you can open a door in that wall and walk out directly and just, you know, 50 meters away, you are right at the ocean. You, the ashes can go directly into the sea. And um, that's one of the wonderful things about Benares. Most, most smashans, uh, whenever possible, are, are built on a river, so the ash will be able to go directly into the river. But Benares is, of course, on the, on the Ganga. And the Ganga is uh, for many, many people in India, the holiest river in the country. And um, Benares is a city that has been associated with the death. Nobody knows exactly how long, but certainly thousands of years. And so it's associated with other things as well. It's associated with learning, especially of the arts and of Sanskrit, etc. And it's associated with uh, Lord Buddha and many, many saints of Kabir and uh, Vallabhacharya and uh, Tailang Swami, etc. But death is really what it has been associated with for a long time because of a belief that if you die there, there is the possibility that Shiva will personally release you from the need of being born again. Um, Many people believe that everyone who dies in Benares will not be born again. Uh, Other people feel that that is not the case. Uh, I suppose one would have to ask Shiva in order to know. But it's definitely true that Benares is probably the only city, it's the only city I can remember uh, being, uh, 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 I mean, seeing this in, but um, every day, at least a dozen and sometimes many more corpses are brought in by truck or by train and they are carried down to the water um, to be cremated in Benares. So even people who don't die in Benares want to be cremated in Benares because of this concept that that they will be blessed by that. So in that way, Benares is very much and has been for thousands of years, it's been associated with not just death, but the possibility of uh, of, of a death that can have a transformative effect on someone who otherwise might continue to transmigrate. And there are two uh, smashans within the city of Benares. Benares is, um, uh, it, it, there are several different names for Benares and there are different, different ways of defining what is Benares. So there's the Pancha Kroshi ya, uh, 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 Yatra or Parikrama. And um, Pancha Krosha means roughly 10 miles. So that's a, that's a circumambulation or it's, it's uh, not a total circumambulation because the river comes in between, but going around the entire city. And everything within that is regarded as being more or less Benares, but there's a much smaller area, and that's the area between the Assi River and the Varana River. That's the area called Varanasi, and that is also called Avimukta, and Avimukta means the place that Shiva never uh, uh, abandons. So that's regarded as really being the central, most important part of Benares, and in Avimukta, there are two smashans. The smaller one is called Harishchandra Ghat. It's named for a king Harishchandra who fell on bad times and who had to serve as a as a um, uh, 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 an employee of the 
cre cremation, uh, the crematory, the, the cremation officials, this is again, thousands of years, uh, hundreds of thousands of years ago. And the bigger Smashan technically is called Jalshaigat, which means sleeping on the water, but everyone knows it as Mani Karnika because of a uh, a small pond that is located very near to it. And Mani Karnika is um, noteworthy because since thousands of years, um, there has always been at least one corpse burning there day and night, 24 hours a day and 24 hours a night. And um, one thing that is particularly noteworthy about the uh, Smashans, at least in Benares, is that uh, if you want to burn someone at Manikarnika, you can't just go in there and buy some wood and light the fire yourself. You have to purchase the fire from a man called the Dome Raja. And the Dome caste are the, are the people who are in charge of doing the cremations. And as you can imagine, they are not very well thought of in society, except when it comes time to cremate someone. And then if the Dome Raja doesn't like your face, he will just say, go away. You can't cremate your body here. I won't let you. So even the lowest member of society at a certain moment becomes the most important person in society. And that's another very useful thing that Banaras teaches people. The original Shankaracharya um, came to Banaras. So, and he, he lived about... Uh, well, more than 1,300 years ago. And when he came to ben Benares, he was very, he was, uh, had a very high opinion of himself and, and of his purity, etc. And um, he was uh, bathing in the Ganga <clears throat> and a chandal, which is more uh, equivalent to a dome, a chandal, splash some water on him. And Shankaracharya said, Oh, Chandal, don't splash water on me. Uh, I am I am I am Shankaracharya. And the Chandal said, um, if the Ganga is supposed to be purifying everything, then how is it possible that I that that any water I should be uh, splashing on you is impure. And then Shankaracharya understood that his ego needed to be restrained. And it turned out that that Chandal was Shiva himself. So that's another thing to know that in Banaras, and especially in the Smashan, you never can tell when you're going to come across Shiva or Bhairava, which is Shiva in his really terrifying form. And so it is always a good idea to remain very calm and to be alert to what's going on around you because Benares is a very intense place. And it's, it's a place that you don't want to visit. Um, you don't want to visit it uh, just out of curiosity. You don't want to visit it randomly. You don't want to visit it without... Um, do forethought. Uh, and I would advise anyone, in fact, I always advise everyone who goes to Benares to first go to Kalabhairava because Kalabhairava is a form of Shiva, but he's the form of Shiva who is the, he's the sheriff, the chief of police of Benares. And you go to Kalabhairava and you say, Kalabhairava, I have come to Benares. Please, let me stay here in safety and achieve the um, the purpose that I've come here for. Uh, I have not come here randomly. I have not come here frivolously. I have come here with a specific purpose. Please assist me to achieve this purpose. And uh, 
then there is at least a chance that you will be able to experience Benares without having some serious problem. Because serious problems can definitely, can and definitely do occur. And sometimes for no fault of your own. It's a place that I found very intense for the senses. Yes, it's it's intense in, in every possible way. I mean, mm. India is intense, but possibly it's Banaras is the intensest place in India in a positive sense. I mean, there are certainly more intense places, but not, not in a positive sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And of course, one of the unique things about Benares is that despite the fact that corpses are being cremated every day on the river, despite the fact that you see corpses coming through the gullies every day, many people still fail to acknowledge the reality that they themselves could die at any time. So even in a place like Benares, where you're exposed to death all the time, that does not necessarily mean that it's going to cause you to acknowledge that reality in a meaningful way in your own life. So, and and of course, as, as my mentor, Vimalananda, used to say, if you are, if you go to the Smashan, and you sit there for a few days, let's say for two weeks, and you watch people be burned every day. And if you do not, at the end of those two weeks, if you have not recognized that this is going to happen to you also, um, then you should just give up trying to be spiritual for this lifetime and go do whatever you want to, because it's not going to happen for you. If you if you can watch everything that happens in the Smashan happened for two weeks and not be not be transformed into some degree, at least to the degree of acknowledging your own mortality, then, then we can be sure that no other kind of spiritual practice is going to, is going to transform you. Mm-hmm. I, I get a lot of people reaching out to me actually quite often about just guidance on traveling to India. And I do find that it's one of those places that a lot of people throw on the list on their very first visit to India. Uh, and yeah, it's almost, it's almost like an initiation in some sense visiting there because you really get thrown into the, the heart of the beauty and the chaos and the mysticism of India in many ways, at least that's how it feels for me, certainly. Yes, I am. Um, I I I generally discourage people from going to Benares on their first trip to India mm-hmm. because um, it, it's it's if you were overwhelmed, you're not going to be paying attention to things that you need to pay attention to, and there are all kinds of things that you may need to pay attention to, but the, but. But if you're just going to be overwhelmed, um, you're better off starting off by being overwhelmed somewhere else until you get used to being in India and then consider going to Benares. So, yes, I mean, if you if you were going to be in India for two months, at least wait for the first go go do something less uh, less confrontational for the first month and then consider paying a visit to Benares. Wise advice. So I'd love to shift the direction of the conversation and move into Jyotish or Vedic astrology into that lens uh, to bring some light for the listener onto the planet Saturn or Shani and its relevance in this conversation to death. And maybe if, if, if it feels appropriate, in addition, maybe one or two remedies that are useful to us that we can all engage in, no matter our astrological birth chart. The Jyotish recognizes nine grahas. 
And uh, of course, the word graha is sometimes translated as planet. But of those nine, two are luminaries, the sun and the moon, five are actual planets, and two are points in space where eclipses take place, the North Node and the South Node, Rahu and Ketu. So the word graha is a better is a better uh, uh, term to employ because graha in Sanskrit means to grasp, to grip, to grope. And so what happens is the when a particular graha is strongly influencing you, that graha grabs hold of your awareness and causes you to see the world in a particular way, causes you to see the world according to the archetype that it embodies. And in the case of Saturn, Saturn is the furthest out of the five visible planets. And it is the slowing, slowest moving. In fact, the word shani means slow. And because it is far away, and because it is slow, it has the um, it has the reputation, and it is a well-deserved reputation of anything of representing everything that is inexorable everything that is happening relentlessly step by step that you can't evade and of course this includes old age and includes falling ill occasionally it includes experiencing the deaths of loved ones. And eventually it includes experiencing your own death. All these things are going to happen to you. And you may not want them to happen, but they are going to happen anyway. So that's part of, it's an important part of Saturn's uh, uh, influence on someone to, to force them to have these experiences that they did not want really to have. And by extension, because of having all these experiences, Saturn rules disillusionment and, and, uh, and, and sometimes even depression. And it rules uh, 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 isolation and a sense of, of fate uh, influencing one strongly. So, so Saturn is a planet that is best addressed by being disciplined because that's what Saturn, Saturn is very disciplined. He, as soon as you are born, he knows exactly when it's going to be time for you to die. So, that sort of planning and and step by step slow forward movement is what Saturn is Saturn's uh, uh, portfolio uh, among the nine grahas, and it's a useful uh, attitude to have um, when one is trying to address the influence of Saturn on one's life. So. Being disciplined in general, um, uh, Saturn means responsibility also. So focusing less on how I'm going to enjoy myself and focusing more on what and whom am I responsible for in this world and making sure that I am paying attention to my responsibilities and I am discharging my responsibilities appropriate, appropriately and meaningfully. This will make Saturn happy because you're doing what he normally wants you to do.
And of course, he also, by virtue of the things he takes away from us, he rules privation and loss and a sense of, of general lack. And this is why the most, if, the most useful things to do for Saturn are to refrain from doing things. So on Saturdays, for example, you could refrain from eating. Uh, and maybe maybe uh, it's not convenient or maybe it physiological is, uh, physiologically is difficult for you to live only on air on Saturdays. But maybe you could live only on water or maybe you could live only on juice or soup or milk or 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 kitchity or one thing um or maybe you could skip a meal whatever whatever kind of privation you impose on yourself saturn will appreciate another good thing to do on a saturday and you can do it any day but saturday is better because that's saturn's day Another good thing to do on Saturdays is to fast from talking. So just observe silence all day long. Or if you can't do that, do it half the day. Limit yourself in one way, or maybe observe silence and don't go out on that day. Do not meet other people. Sit at home, do extra yoga, meditate some more, recite some extra mantras. Saturn also represents service. So any kind of selfless service that you perform at any time, but especially on Saturday, will be appreciated. And that includes especially to Saturnian type of people. And Saturnian types of people are the ones who are isolated from the rest of society. So these could be people in hospitals, in jails, in uh, sanatoria, uh, in mental institutions, in monasteries, homeless people, any kind of people who are not fitting into society. These are Saturnian kind of people. And serving them in some way will benefit uh, your relationship to Saturn. So there, and of course, there are other, uh, there are mantras you can repeat and, and, and you can make offerings of oil to in temples and things like that. But it's even more meaningful when you do something to limit yourself personally, because that's what Saturn is trying to do to you. Um, I will say that it is very, very valuable to, um, feed crows on Saturdays. Now crows, of course, um, not, not crows don't live everywhere. And I think there's not actually that many crows possibly in Australia. But I have noticed that there are grackles in Australia, at least in, in, uh, in Byronshire, there are grackles. And grackles are also very, they are dark birds. And they are they are similar to crows, and they can also be uh, fed. If you if you want to feed a crow or a grackle or a, a a a seagull, which is more for Rahu, but can also be extended to Saturn in a way, or any any other kind of corvid, like even a blue jay, make it a point not to feed it right at your home because otherwise these are all very intelligent birds and soon you will find them flocking to your house all the time expecting to be fed. Can I ask you, uh, out of just to clarify, you've highlighted obviously that abstaining is the approach here, but also, I, I, if I'm correct, I believe also just getting your life in order is also part of you know, pleasing Saturn. Is that correct? So, you know, it could be an example of making sure you have a will, for example, or tidying up your house or decluttering or, you know, just getting your life into a more orderly state. Is that correct? 
That's where the discipline aspect of Saturn comes in. Yes, okay. you should be disciplined. Yes, you should. Your the simpler your life is, the more that Saturn will appreciate it because Saturn is not showy and complicated like Venus is, for example, or the Moon is. Mm -hmm. um, and Saturn means responsibility. So yes, having your affairs in order. Yes. If you owe money to people, paying them back. Yes, if you have said you're going to do something, then you need to be in a position to do it. So being responsible is very much what Saturn is most interested in. And uh, and and that's why it's so, so essential for people to, to be clearly aware of what their responsibilities are and to... to to commit themselves to addressing and 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 and, and dealing with those responsibilities. Mm -hmm. In case it's helpful to the listener, uh, something that I do most Saturdays, uh, I, I have two very young children, so silence is just not an option at this in this season of my life. Um, but uh, something that I do on Saturdays normally is to abstain completely from screens and social media and and. Any watching anything, and I feel like that's also just min minimizing that communication or that sort of talking or engaging. And yes, I've got to engage with my family and my children, and we have duties and obligations usually on Saturdays. And as I said, that's the season of life. But I found that removing myself from social media and engaging with my community and stepping away from that has been for that one day has been very helpful uh, on many levels. So that's something that perhaps could be of value. That would definitely be a value. And that's something people should be doing anyway, mm. because social media and screens are so addictive. So it is something that everyone should be doing. It's something that, uh, and Saturday is an excellent day for that. So, um, uh, and even uh, again, even if you can only do it for half of the day, then, then it's, that's better than nothing setting aside a certain period of time that you were deliberately doing, you're deliberately imposing some kind of limitation on yourself. Uh, that's what Saturn is looking for. That's what he will appreciate. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. Robert, may I ask you, uh, and this is something I do ask all guests, uh, and it's partly because it's something that I just personally find very fascinating, but I know it's of value to the listeners. I, and I'm sure there's so many things you could respond with, but maybe it's a big question, maybe not. What maybe one or two book recommendations would you have for anyone immersed in any of the you know traditions of India, whether that's yoga, Ayurveda, Jyotish, and and beyond, Vastu, etc. Um, I would say. Um... I mean, the first book that comes to mind is a book called Ka, K-A, by Roberto Calasso. Mm -hmm. I have it. And it's it's not set out like a conventional book. Uh, it's a, it's a but it's a it's a good way of just sort of um, uh, getting a a a, a non getting closer to what might be a an originally indian perspective on uh on 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 the indian uh mythology um i i also i honestly have not looked at it in several years but i remember very much appreciating a book called the wonder that was india by A.L. Basham, B-A-S-H-A-M, who was a professor at ANU, in fact, and whom I met once in like 1980 when he was rather old, uh, older. And it just, you know, provides sort of an overview of all the different things that India uh, created and, and offered to the world and so on. Um, I'm not sure exactly how easy it is to find anymore. Ka certainly is is easy to locate mm -hmm. um but um otherwise as far as i'm not sure that the the ultimate volume has been written that really 
takes a, an an a, a, an overview of all the all the different vidyas and puts them uh you know into a into into a perspective that is uh that's that that in the in the in the con the that provides context to how they have influenced uh, uh the culture for so many thousands of years mm -hmm. we'll pop these in the show notes too for anybody listening in just to make it easily accessible uh i know but certainly that your books have been really influential on my path Prakriti being the first one that I read many years ago and I've loaned to to many friends and I know that so a, a huge number of people listening no doubt would have read the book and, and would own the book um, and of course the Agora series I'm curious to know are there any more books in the works at all from you well as a matter of fact um, I have just completed just means a couple of weeks ago completed a um uh the translation of a of a book that is almost seven thousand verses long uh and that uh that book is called the um navnat bhakti sara and the Navnat Bhakti Sara is about the nine knots, Goraknat, Machendranat, etc. And um, it is uh, uh, was written um, a couple of hundred years ago, and it is. It is meant to be used as an upaya. Upaya means a remedy, like my book, The Greatness of Saturn, is a remedy for people who are undergoing their seven and a half year transit of Saturn over their moon. So this particular book is when you have different problems in your life, there are 40 chapters that um, you, you identify what problem it is, and then you create a ritual for reading that chapter or or uh, 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 reading it silently or aloud or having someone else read it to you if you can't read it every day, making offerings, focusing your attention very uh, diligently and and having that reading again act as a as a remedy. So, I finished the translation. Now I have to put it into uh, my own words instead of the translated words and uh, add an introduction, which will be fairly extensive. And so uh, hopefully before too much longer, that will appear. Mm -hmm. That sounds wonderful. It sounds really incredible. Uh, and I'm curious also, are you intending to release the audio books to agora two and three uh, and if and if so do you know approximately when that will be coming um i don't have any immediate uh in, in intention of doing that because um it uh it it's it's a lot of work mm. uh the first one i think took 27 hours and I mean, 27 talking hours, not mm. counting the hours that I was uh, not talking and having to rest or eat or sleep or whatever. Um, so that was several days. And uh, that was a big uh, in investment, both in time and also in energy. Mm -hmm. And so um, uh, maybe at some point when I run out of other things to do, but uh, I, I can't envision that happening very soon. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's very reasonable. I'd love to ask you as we come to conclude our conversation, just a couple of fun little questions here, if you don't mind. Um, Robert, what is your favorite meal? I it, have been asked that question more than <laughs> and unfortunately sure. I, don't really, I don't really have a favorite meal, I suppose. 
uh, it would probably probably be uh, Alfonso Mango's uh, ghee and milk. That's what comes for me at the moment. Nice. And if you could read only one book or text for the rest of your life, nothing else, you can read it as many times as you like, what would that be? That would be the Jnaneshwari, the, which is technically called the Bhavartha Deepika. And uh, that's the commentary, that's the Bhagavad Gita with the commentary of Jnaneshwar Maharaj, who lived about a, almost 800 years ago in uh, 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 near Pune. And um, it's just, it. number one, of course, it's a brilliant commentary. Uh, he was a Siddha. He had achieved uh, uh, a personal transformation of a very high degree. And so, and, and he gives hints as to how to do that with yourself in the book but in addition the entire the entire uh the entire commentary is offered to his guru his guru was his brother nivrittinath and there's just and and nyaneshwar finished um finished this uh uh commentary ab about the time that he was 20 years old because he took living samadhi jivan samadhi when he was 21 so there's a a there's a freshness and there's just a a quality of devotion to his brother who was after all his brother as well as his guru that just that just is infused through the entire work that um is um uh that itself provides a certain quality of transcendence mm-hmm you did recommend that book uh, at some stage in the satsanga and I managed to, seemed very difficult to get here in Australia. So if anyone listening, I managed to get a very high quality secondhand copy from the Thrift Books website. I'm yet to read it, but I am thankful to, to have that. Uh, and so last question for you, what would be your favorite temple in India? Well, that is a really good question also. Um, because I've been to many of them, mm -hmm. and um, I, uh, I would have to say that probably, um, probably there is. I, 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 I'm not sure I could say there is one temple. My favorite, uh, as far as a physical place, I mean a physical building is concerned. Um, I regard the city of Benares itself as a temple. And so I would probably have to say um, the city of Benares um, in general, because uh, there, of course, are so many temples there. But um, otherwise, I perhaps would have to say it is the uh, one of the one of the first um one of the first temples i went to when i moved to pune and it's outside pune several kilometers it's one of the eight uh the eight noteworthy ganapati temples in uh maharashtra it's called it's in a small village called teur t-h-e-u-r and it's called the chintamani ganapati Chintamani means uh, the wish-fulfilling gem. So um, that's uh, that 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 probably because it was the first, and because it is still one that I very much appreciate. Um, if I had to choose one, at least for today, that's the one I'd choose. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you for sharing. Thank you. And so, for anyone listening uh, who would like to learn from you i assume the best place to go is to your website which is drsvoboda.com uh, yes. but you can access a wealth of offerings online certainly through teachable uh at drsvoboda.teachable.com i believe it was and you're on instagram yes. at dr robert svoboda uh, so people obviously can reach out to you that way uh, and 
just quickly, if I'm correct, you are retiring officially at the end of the year from public teaching, but will you be continuing the satsanga subscription? I, I will be continuing the satsanga subscription for the, um, at least for, for the next year, and we'll see what happens thereafter. Okay. But um, uh, it's move, moving around to from place to place to just to go and talk. It's you know, at this now that I'm past 70, it's it's needlessly hard on my body. Mm-hmm. And it's just so much easier to teach online. Certainly. I can personally say myself that it's been incredibly valuable, the subscription and a true gift for so many of us to have access to your knowledge and to enrich our lives in so many ways when we couldn't necessarily be with you in, in person. Um, so in some sense, COVID has been a great blessing for that um so robert thank you so much for your time and and particularly for your tireless dedication and sharing with the wider community i know so many people listening just have deep reverence and appreciation for your work and of course thank you for joining me uh, for this conversation on the podcast today thank you if this episode was of value to you and your life please subscribe and if you can think of someone who would benefit from this dialogue please do them a favor and send it their way. If you feel called, hop on over to iTunes and leave a five-star review. This is the best way to get these conversations into the ears and hearts of our wider community, to those who need it most. You can find me at amyelandry.com or over on Instagram at amyelandry. May we all move a little closer to a life living in alignment.